It's good to be back from vacation. We had the opportunity to go to a couple different churches in southern Maine and see a few different worship styles, but it's good to be back. If you're new or you've just kind of been in and out all summer, you might be wondering what happened to the sermon series. Um, We are still going through Revelation And next week is the big finale. Dr. Dave will be back from Florida, and it will be the final sermon for Revelation. You don't want to miss it. Hope you're not out of town for Labor Day weekend. In the meantime, we've got a two-week break, and I heard Jed Farrell did a fabulous job last week with Psalm 145. Uh, Today, we're going to look at Psalm 73, and uh, I hope it's going to bring us to uh, hear the message of Revelation well. Uh, Psalm 73 has meant a lot to me. Uh, I don't think I've ever preached on it, but we taught on it one year. It was the theme of our youth retreat, and I challenged the students to memorize it, and only one did. Amanda Garnier learned it all, and uh, she and I recited it there, and she did a lot better job than I did, and I wish I still remembered it. Um, but uh, this is also going to be my ordination sermon on Thursday around noon. So if you think of that, I'll be preaching to a whole committee. I think I told you before it was going to be an exodus, what I did for you Sunday, but this is it. Just tell me what I got wrong afterwards, and I can correct it in the meantime. So as I was thinking through the theme of Psalm 73, I always try to grab a hook, something that uh, brings the theme into focus and uh, the theme is, is really com- looking at comparing the lives of those who sin freely with no apparent consequences to those who follow God. For most of my adult life, or our married life, we have not had cable, but we just gave in recently. They wear you down with that internet, phone, cable, three for one, it's cheaper. So we have cable, and SpongeBob and Dora, we had to do all that. But I've been catching up on some of the shows that I've never seen, uh, that I've just heard about. And none of these are recommendations. They're dis-unrecommendations. Um, but they help me tie in the theme. Here's, here's a few that I've seen um, that just came to mind. I was thinking through. Uh, Entourage. It's a show about four guys who run around L.A., Hollywood, looking for parties and women and toys and fun stuff. Um, One of them's a famous actor, and they just, uh, I think their biggest moral dilemma is whether he's going to star in an independent film and be a serious actor or make a Hollywood action flick and and just cash his big paycheck. Um, I I realize if if you've seen it, it's it's a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's a real picture of what our society values in youth, beauty, wealth, and hedonism. The Sopranos. I, I, I thought that was a music opera show. I had no idea. Um, apparently, Tony Soprano is the head of two families, his own wife and kids, and then a mob family. And he's so conflicted that he's in therapy over it. And um, apparently, I guess, the show shows enough consequences of what he does that it's a realistic picture of sin 
a little too realistic. Um, but a spoiler alert, um, if you stick with it, apparently at the end of the six seasons, everybody in, in, in the mob is getting shot or arrested, and he ends up in a pizza parlor with his family, and it ends. So he gets away with it. Um, there's a show that I haven't watched. Uh, it's called Girls Next Door. Apparently, Hugh Hefner is still running his Playboy Mansion uh, well into his 80s and trying to teach us that sex with anyone doesn't have consequences. So these shows really bring out this theme that the, the wicked, that we can sin with however we want with very few consequences, punishments on this earth. And as we look to be the body of Christ and live our lives as Christians, how do you do that in this kind of world? How do I do youth ministry in an MTV Cribs generation? Have you seen that one? That's um, a rock star or an athlete uh, or a rapper takes you through his crib, which is his mansion, which is three or four times bigger than any of our houses. And he's usually got a fleet of Lamborghinis and his own gym and uh, kitchen and his own uh, chef. And he's just boasting about everything he has. And anybody who cashes a paycheck is gagging and saying that's ridiculous. And all the teens and young people are going, wow. That'd be great. But I think all of us feel envy as we watch that if I just had some of what they have. Psalm 73 is about a God-fearing believer looking out at the world and lamenting that the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer. That those who do evil never seem to be punished for it. And we certainly don't need television shows to tell us that that is true. Uh, one, one year I took the youth through a, a curriculum called the, from the International Justice Mission. And what that group does is tries to free slaves all over the world by working with law enforcement officials and through the justice system. Uh, if you didn't know, slavery is larger now. It's a bigger business than it has been at any time in history including here in America. And often those who profit off of forcing young children into bonded labor to pay off debts that don't really exist or to force young girls into prostitution, they live above the law. And so you can feel some of the psalmist's anger as you read Psalm 73. Now we usually assume that the Psalms were all written by David, uh, this one is ascribed to Asaph. Now, John Calvin and, and many others thought, well, that, it's still by David. It was maybe just sung by Asaph or dedicated to him. Um, we don't know a lot about Asaph. I think we're just going to treat it as written by him. There's about a dozen psalms that are attributed to Asaph. Uh, one thing we do learn about him in 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16, when David brings the ark back to Jerusalem, He's celebrating, he's dancing on the way, and finally he brings it to a tent. And he says, I want the music to continue, so bring the Levites in, the priests. And Asaph is the chief Levite. And he's a musician, and it says he, he sounded the cymbals. 
So apparently he was the drummer in the jazz combo that they had. They had trumpets, harps, and lyres, and he was the drummer. So let's hear what he has to teach us in Psalm 73. We're going to unfold this a little bit of time if you have your Bibles um, and want to look through the whole psalm. That's cool. Otherwise, we're going to have the ESV up here, and we're just going to take it piece by piece because it's a story that unfolds. So let's get the first 12 verses up there. Thanks. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Let's stop there. That sounds funny, doesn't it, that he would be speaking about how they're fat in a a good way because we don't necessarily value that now. We, We value models and athletes who are thin and trim, but... That's because we don't have a shortage of food. And back then, if you were thin, you might have been getting ready to die. So fatness is part of the luxury that, this, that the wicked lived in. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. You sort of get a picture of a a mafia mobster who sits there surrounded by luxury that he doesn't deserve. Pride is his necklace. Violence and and malice, threats just come off of him. Ultimately, they challenge God. The rule of God is even, I think, God's people question who God is as they look at them. So this is the initial problem for Asaph. He knows intellectually, even experientially, that that God is good to his people. Remember, he starts with that. Truly, God is good to Israel? That may even be a question to those who are pure in heart, but... When he looks around, it's hard to prove that, that God is good to his people. His head knows it, maybe, but his heart isn't feeling it. I mean, if God is good to those who are pure, wouldn't the opposite be true, that he would be tough? That he would be punishing those who are impure? I think the background in in Asaph's mind is, is the nature of God's 
covenant with Israel. When God set up the nation of Israel, he gave them laws, he entered into a covenant with them, and the bottom line was, if you obey me, if you follow, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you, I will punish you. Blessings and curses run throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. So what happened to that simple formula, I think Asaph is wondering. It doesn't look like that's how God governs. Well, as the book of Job and the Psalms and the majority of the scriptures teach, it's never quite that simple. Yes, Israel found blessing when they obeyed and found punishment and exile eventually when they disobeyed. But that doesn't mean that everything that happens can be traced to God's immediately reacting to sin or to obedience. When pagan nations prospered, it wasn't that God was blessing them or that he was ignoring them. Remember when they, the Pharisees brought a blind man to Jesus and said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he said, it's not about that, to paraphrase. I like the, the imagery that Asaph gives at the beginning. My steps, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. I was losing my footing. My foundation was slipping out from under me. I thought I knew how God dealt with the world, but then I look around and I lose the foundation of truth that I thought I had. I think it's called cognitive dissonance. I thought I knew it, but it's messing with my head here. Let's go on to verses 13 through 16. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Notice that Asaph moves from being cast down and upset that the wicked are getting away scot-free, he's now looking back over his own life and saying, my attempts to live a godly life are a waste. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I'm sure Asaph was thinking, if I've done these things, where is my blessing from God? Where is my best life now? I've got it right here. Joel Osteen, page 77. Double for your trouble. If you will keep the right attitude, God will take all your disappointments, broken dreams, the hurts and pains, and he'll add up all the trouble and sorrow that's been inflicted on you, and he will pay you back with twice as much peace, joy, happiness, and success. The Bible says God will give us a twofold recompense for our former shame. If you'll just believe, if you'll put your trust and confidence in God, he will give you double for your trouble. 
Where is my double for my trouble? Asaph is wondering. Now, Joel Osteen is a very easy target. And if you've read his book, we actually, I think, would learn a lot about the love of God, about giving generously, becoming a person of integrity. It's a lot of good stuff in there. He just seems horribly imbalanced (laughs) towards living victoriously now. And the way he quotes scripture, it's not what, when he quoted it in there, it wasn't a quote. It was, anyways, read it. I don't want to get off on that. But Asaph, I'm sure, wants to know where his best life is. The wicked are living it. God, did you get your wires crossed? And I was supposed to get that luxury and good stuff, and they were supposed to get the suffering every morning. I think he realizes also, verse 15, I don't want to speak this out loud. I don't want to bring this to the people of God because they're all called to a high standard. I don't want to betray my fellow believers. But the discontent is there. The complaining, the complaint against God is lingering in his mind. Now, do you, believers, do you consciously or subconsciously believe feel that God owes you a good life if you live in obedience to his word? Are we the older brother in the prodigal son story? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. He's done everything right. He's stayed with his dad, worked with him, and his brother has totally squandered all the wealth that his father gave him He's been a miserable failure and now he comes back and the father gives him a party? As the teens would say, really? Really, dad? You're giving him a party? Where's my party? God has promised us abundant life. Jesus says, I will give you abundant life And then we fill in the blanks of what that looks like, don't we? I know what abundant life looks like. And you're not reaching it, God. It's not quite there. Keep giving. We forget that he's also promised us a lot of trials and persecution. The fact that God has given us salvation, plucked us out of the path of destruction, and bestowed on us all the blessings in Christ should be enough. But we have such a high standard of injustice, don't we? I'm reminded of that every time we travel. We just drove back from Maine on Friday and when somebody flies by you going 20, 25 miles over the speed limit, what's your reaction? Where's the cop? Where's the police now when you need them? Ignoring the fact that you're going seven or eight miles over the speed limit yourself. It's as though we think that we would be satisfied if justice was served immediately. I mean, wouldn't it be great if somebody cuts in line, an invisible hand just pulls them, drops in the back of the line? That'd be great. Wouldn't it be cool if the guys who run these schemes that 
take all the retired people's money from them, if they were immediately prosecuted and they had to pay back money with interest and serve at retirement homes for the rest of their lives, that'd be cool. That's not always how life works and it's not how God works. And I think this is the test of whether we trust that he is ultimately in charge in this life. Jesus told parables about servants who weren't ready when their masters returned. And they had an original meaning in saying, Israel, I'm here. Don't miss me. I am who you've been waiting for. But I think they also give us a good picture of living faithfully in this world, waiting for his return. God knows how we live, and he's testing us. It's the classic dilemma from grade school. I don't know if this happened to you. When, when the teacher leaves the room, keep, keep reading, kids. I'll just be gone a few minutes. Well, what do you do? You look around, everybody's whispering and passing notes, and they're not reading, right? You join in. I remember that happening. My teacher was sitting right outside the room the whole time teaching us that. It's that dilemma stretched out over a whole lifetime. God seems to be absent. There don't seem to be immediate consequences all the time for what we do. And yet, will we be faithful? Even when we look around and see people getting away with what we know the scriptures condemn, are we tempted to join in and despair? of living Christ-like. So where has Asaph been? He's envied the wicked. He's become bitter toward God. He's been tempted to give up and to give in. But the turning point in the psalm is verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So what happened to this man who was so downcast about the unfairness of life? He went to the sanctuary. He went and worshiped God. He was reminded of the truth of who God is and what he does. When you go to church, you should be reminded of the gospel and its fullness. You should be, you should hear the truth of God's love, God's justice, God's plan of redemption so thoroughly that it should cut through all the lies that you have started believing, that you've picked up all over the place. If you are going to worship and you're in the middle of contemplating leaving your spouse for an unbiblical reason, I hope that you are reminded that God honors those who keep their covenants. If you've been setting all your hopes and all your energies on your retirement account, I hope you're reminded that to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. If you're carrying grudges and refusing to forgive, 
I hope that you're reminded that God's forgiveness is infinite and that we are to forgive as the Lord forgave us. And there are a thousand lies that the truth of Scripture can correct. Corporate worship, the preaching, singing, reading of God's word can dispel. I hear all the time, oh, we missed, we missed a Sunday or two. No big deal. You guys sang, right? You had a sermon, same old song and dance. We'll, we'll be back. We missed. Yeah, that's, that's kind of true. But you know what? You might have missed a great truth that would straighten out the idols and the lies that you've bought into. And here Asaph realizes the truth that the wicked will not prosper indefinitely. Let's go to verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Remember verse two, where Asaph was losing his footing, his foundation, well, who's slipping and losing their footing now? He draws attention to the fact that it will be the wicked. Eventually, they will fall to ruin. And Asaph has regained his footing, his foundation in the truth. If you remember, if you've read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's probably the sermon he's most known for. It's the sermon that people can characterize the Puritans as all hellfire and damnation, even though they weren't. He's a very well-rounded theologian, greatest American theologian ever. And he taught on the mercy and love of God just as strongly. But his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, if you doubt the reality of the Scripture's teaching on hell, and punishment, read that. Find it online very easily. You will be reminded. And he bases his sermon on Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, that says, their feet shall slide in due time. And he cites these verses from Psalm 73 several times, and he explains that there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. It's not that God can't. It's not that God has forgotten or overlooked their sin. God's pleasure, God's plan and his will, for some reason he has not destroyed the wicked, but he will. And he gives the image of holding a spider over the flames or being held on by a single thread. And as soon as God withdraws his hand, the demons in hell will grab the wicked and drag them into hell. This thought should not make us happy. 
make us triumphant. We should mourn over that. But it should give us perspective. I think that's what it does to Asaph. He remembers that God has not lost control over anything and his justice will come. Let's move to verses 21 through 26. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We just sang that. So Asaph points back. He says, when I was wrestling, when I was questioning you, God, I was like a selfish beast. I didn't understand and now I've realized my ignorance, my folly. I forgot who you are, God. And now I remember. James Boyce suggests that, that we can look at Psalm 73 in a very easy outline, just using three pronouns. The beginning is they, the middle is me, and the end is you. Because at the beginning, Asaph is looking out at, at them. And he's feeling envy and injustice for, for the wicked. And the second section, he focuses on himself. And he feels doubt that he might have wasted his life and he may not be as secure in the Lord as he thought. But finally, he focuses on God and things become clear. He realizes that his rant had been unjustified and that God is the ultimate provider and the perfect executor of justice. And he's so much more than a judge. God intimately loves the believer. He guides us, takes us by the hand, and is with us. He says there's no one else who can save. No one else in heaven or on earth. No other advocate No one else who can provide for his people. And ultimately, he realizes, I don't need the riches, the wealth, the health of the wicked. What they have, I don't need that to prove to me that God loves me. My reward is God himself. He is my strength, my portion God is the reward. And finally, we get a, a summary at the end of all this, verses 27 and 28. Verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Do not be deceived by what you see around you. The righteous who are found in Christ will not lose their heavenly reward and the wicked will not escape the hand of the judge. God's justice will come. If we've learned anything from our study of the book of Revelation, it's that God triumphs over his enemies. And we're taught again that we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Because if we walked by sight, we would look around us as Asaph did. And we would lose all sense of perspective. And we would despair at this seeming injustice of how the world works. But believers cling to God's word and his promises and be renewed in your obedience. Don't be pulled off course by what you see around you. I want to read again and just let it sink in uh, the responsive reading, what we read earlier. I don't know if you realize that the responsive reading, we always try to tie it into the sermon. But here's Psalm 43, or 34. Fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Believe that. And if there's any here who have never put their faith in Christ, I want you to consider a few things. Consider that you have bought into a lie that you can live your life however you want Maybe you think there is no God. Maybe you think that God doesn't care how we act. Maybe you think that God will somehow overlook your sin based on something good in you. Asaph said, that's like living in a dream that you hope to not wake up from, but you will one day. Please consider that you will not ultimately Escape judgment from a just God on your own. If you look around, you'll see a bunch of people who were wicked. They were on the path of destruction in their sins. 
And God didn't clean them up to be good enough for him. But they trusted in Jesus Christ who died in their place. He took the judgment of God onto himself so that we didn't have to. Consider that. As the music team makes their way up, let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you for this reminder. that this life is not all there is, that as we look around us, it, it can be so deceiving. Lord, we see people thrive who are far from you, who challenge you, who live their lives however they want. Lord, and we are brought low sometimes as we wish that they were punished or wish that there was some sense of tangible justice in front of us. And we sometimes wonder why we struggle as believers, why life is not easy after we accept Jesus. Lord, that you have laid out trials and struggles to test us, to refine us. Ultimately, Lord, give us the perspective of your word that you are a just God and you forgive sins only in your son who took our sins on our behalf. And now you see us as righteous. Righteous. Lord, may that inspire us to tell those around us that we know do not know the good news of the gospel. Because hell and punishment are real. Lord, as we come to church week after week, whether it's here or visiting other places, Lord, feed us on your word. As we live our lives, as we carve out time to read your word on our own and pray, Lord, remind us of your great love for us and your plan of redemption and your ultimate plan of saving those who are in Christ. Lord, teach us the truth of your word so that we don't cling to the lies of this world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.